to the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your host, Mike Drohan. Together we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. My next guest has needed to be somewhat of a cultural chameleon in order to survive and thrive away from her native homeland of Versailles, France. Upon finishing her high school studies, faced with the crossroads of realizing a childhood passion for produce or pursuing a profit-led pathway, Isabel chose the latter. Business studies with a one-year overseas visa baked in. Travel, adventure, and the unknown, her only real guarantee. A pretty big call for a young French native, for whom family and culture were everything. Fast forward to the current time, and we are speaking with the leadership-level digital marketing executive, wife and mother of two based in Sydney, Australia, who has recently launched Prepped Fresh a startup which, in effect, champions the very French traditions of delicious healthy food prepared at home with the family. So where did Isabel get the confidence and know-how to sever the imaginary umbilical cord between comfortable career and calling? And was this seemingly full-circle relationship with food and tradition a conscious path followed or a compelling case for serendipity? Join Isabel and I as we explore decision-making, building and maintaining momentum for following your passions, Australian insensitivities, overworking, and much more on this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Uh, Is thank you for joining this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. It's been a little while in the making, you and I getting together. (laughs) Uh, Super thrilled, though. Um, I know it's actually um, funny how when we met and worked together, um, we kind of shared a lot quite quickly because of being in the exact same kind of mindset. Um, so although we haven't really known each other for that long, you know, it's only been maybe just over a year. Um, I feel like we've actually shared a lot and talked you know, about quite deep, meaningful stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And that's absolutely, absolutely the case. Like, I think, I feel like I've known you a lot longer than I have. (laughs) And it is that whole uh, sort of those pressure situations uh, where we've kind of been able to sort of talk about uh, professional scenarios and difficult situations. And I kind of compare it a little bit to like why I love doing uh, a combat sport as my, one of my side sort of passion things to do uh, because in those situations where you meet and train with people and it's physical like that and you're, you can be a little bit scary and all that sort of stuff it, it kind of is a pressure cooker for relationships like you make the you form these bonds with people you didn't know a day ago and all of a sudden you know you've 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 been sparring with each other and suddenly you have like a, a bond with them that you might not ever have with someone that you've known your whole life. Like it just kind of it moves it really, really quickly. So it is an interesting aspect of life if you are, if you can be, I guess, in those situations. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've taken a lot of good things from our kind of impromptu discussions, uh, which I still to this day kind of think back to. I think one recently when we were chatting I was talking about what to do, like in terms of I'm working on doing epic stuff. I've got to keep money coming in and all these sort of things. And you kind of said, Mike, you've you've earned this time to give doing epic stuff your focus. Why would you be looking at 
other business opportunities to pay the bills. Why don't you just go full steam at doing Epic stuff? And it was like, I know this. I needed someone to tell me that. <laughs> yeah, you don't want you don't want distractions, at least not so soon. You definitely want to have like the full headspace to to actually let big things happen. Yeah, yeah. And I think we share this trait which is we're both over deliverers. <laughs> like if we, if we start doing something and this is why we make good employees, it's we'll do almost too much of it. Like I will always lean in, you will always lean in and then we'll turn around and be like, oh my God, we've run ourselves totally empty doing this and <laughs> it's our own fault. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, I'm so proud of, you know, both of us for actually having big dreams and, you know, taking action on it because I think we kind of both went through the same kind of process of you know um, resigning from a good job and you know taking that kind of leap of faith to kind of embrace I guess what a big project and exciting project could be but without any certainty and we've been through it like exactly at the same time I think we both resigned around October last year Yeah, uncanny, mm. uncanny timing. Like I didn't realize that you had resigned and then we're chatting and <laughs> we, we kind of break the news to each other. That's funny. We, we're a good influence on each other. Well, hopefully good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe our former employer would say a bad influence, but <laughs> such is life. <laughs> Now, is before we get into anything too serious, uh, are you recent news that is kind of changed my whole world because I was a, I'm a huge fan. Are you a Daft Punk fan at all? Um, I do, actually. I do like um, Daft Punk. I don't know if I would necessarily describe myself as a hardcore fan, but um, I remember when I was like, you know, 19, 20, definitely um, enjoying it as my go-to. What are you asking? Mm. Well, I'm interested because, A, because I've always been a big fan of Daft Punk and they've always had this kind of Uh, mystique to them and over in Australia like they've they've been a huge act here and I can only imagine in France they were must have been super ultra mega stars because they cracked into the American market uh, they got super super huge and they are kind of I guess yeah I guess my perception is they're like one of the originals to do really, truly amazing, massive electronic uh, production and concerts and this sort of thing. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because um, France and more specifically Paris and even more so Versailles, which is where I'm from originally, is a breeding ground for musicians. So we actually have um, a culture of, you know, people playing music from a young age. We have a lot of um, spaces that people can use to rehearse and for bands to kind of form. And so we actually have quite a few bands that kind of started off um, in Versailles or in Paris. Um, so Daft Punk is, I guess, one of a few that started off in France, did really well kind of, you know, internationally. Um, but I would say probably not the one that necessarily kind of marked me the most growing up, um, just because there's been so many. And I think that's one of the things about the French culture is that they tend to really protect kind of local production and local creators and make sure that, you know, on the radio, they only play like, you know, mostly um, local music. And so that's really the way to foster and to to fund the kind of the music industry. And it's similar for other creative um, 
skills like um, you know, SM for um, actors. So most movies tend to be um, local, or at least they try to protect the share of local movies that show at the cinema. Um, so that's actually something that is receiving a lot of criticism, sometimes from um, other markets, but I think is actually partly the beauty as to why the French culture is so rich, is because they really kind of nurture it and protect it. Yes, and you can you can see in the in the the quality of the cinema that consistently comes out of France and how the there's such a an emphasis on quality of dialogue and great writing and yeah and it's kind of been consistently maintained that and from the sounds of it, it the whole French art system is designed to nurture that, which that's a really powerful thing. I can imagine that is that would be necessary to have that sort of consistency in such a uh, such an amazing output. But uh, yeah, I just thought it was interesting because I I was looking at their some of their older stuff in YouTube, and they're just like these two 17, 16 year old kids playing live acts in the south of France. I just thought, geez, what a world they have experienced to go from these like you know little rough around the edges French teens to the point of becoming basically pop music icons. Mm. Huge. We, we have a day in France um, called um, La Fête de la Musique, which is like um, a music celebration day when all the kind of bands and aspiring musicians kind of uh, play in the street. And so everywhere you go is like little acts kind of, you know, everywhere. And that's one of the best day. It's amazing. And the the level, the quality of talent is absolutely outstanding. And that's often how um, bands are discovered is specifically like on that day. Um, That is so cool. I love it. I feel like the short amount of time I spent in France that I went to a couple of musical things and they were just, uh, there was such a great energy at them, which you know, Melbourne has quite good energy too. I think that's why one of the reasons people love this city. Uh, but yeah, I just remember feeling like, you know, the locals were into it. And I loved also that the demographic was so broad, like there was little kids at concerts and also like grandparent age having a dance. And I was like, this, this is awesome. So inclusive, like such a clearly like a culturally fully integrated experience of the arts, which I thought was really nice. Um, since we're we're on this kind of French angle, let's uh, let's kind of go. Is I'm really interested personally because I think one of like cultural experiences interest me in general. Like I love travel, and uh, you know I've done a bit of travel in my life, and I think that it is largely broadened my horizons in many regards. Being able to have been blessed enough to go places, see things do different things, uh, meet interesting people. And I thought when I was thinking about the Isabel Dunn kind of story and what you've been up to at, to this point in your life, I was thinking to myself, geez, like you're at this point where you've, you've just recently launched a startup, Prep, Prepped Fresh, uh, which is an awesome project. We can talk more about that in a bit. But you've launched it from living in Sydney, Australia with your, with your family. Uh, and obviously you've lived in France for a significant portion of your life. You're a French native, I guess would be the term. You were born in France. So I guess I'm interested to hear the story of how you ended up here of all places, living in Sydney, Australia. And I guess, yeah, the journey from, from that to launching this startup 
in in a city which isn't your I guess your your native country. Um, yeah, it's um, it's interesting to kind of look back now. It may seem like a really kind of strange um, thing to happen, but I loved growing up in France. I absolutely um, adore France for you know the culture and all the reasons we discussed earlier. But I also, um, as far as I can remember, I've always been furiously independent and very adventurous. Um, and so for me, that really meant traveling. Um, so when I was at the, at the age of um, choosing, you know, what to study, I picked a business school very much solely on the fact that it offered a year overseas in England. Um, and that was very much kind of, you know, enough that kind of sold it in for me. Um, and then from there, that's kind of how I found myself at 19 years old living in London. Um, I was kind of studying um, two different degrees and I didn't do what most French people do, which is sticking together. I actually um, avoided <laughs> spending time with French people to really immerse myself and, and become fluent as quickly as I could. And so I had, you know, in my um, halls residence, I had friends from Canada, from um, Sweden, from Denmark, um, and I pretty much kind of became fluent in that year. So I remember the switch when I kind of started thinking in English and dreaming in English, and that kind of happened in that first year, which was the best thing, because then when came the stage as the, at the end of that year to choose whether I wanted to go back to France and um, do my internship there or stay in London, I was in a good position to actually stay in London and start working there. My English was good enough, um, which... I did, and my internship turned into a first job in the media industry. Um, and then, you know, I kind of met my husband, um, or now husband, um, who is originally from Yorkshire. Um, and then he had aspirations to go traveling like most Brits do. So we kind of went together to Asia for um, a few months and then landing in Sydney um, with the view of staying just for that one year, you know, the working holiday visa. Um, and um, obviously Love Day, you know, have stayed ever since. So it's been 12 years now. And what I would say is that when I first arrived in Sydney, I did kind of notice um, gaps in market, you know, things that um, I was used to using in France or in, in, in England, in Europe, um, that was just not available here. So especially in the frozen aisle in supermarkets, I kind of noticed how it was very much um, just low quality ready meals. Um, and what was frustration for, you know, the most of probably 10 years, kind of suddenly um, the penny dropped and that kind of clicked that I could actually do something in that space. And that became, um, you know, an opportunity and that's how Prep Fresh was born. So it was very much a, a fruition of um, growing up overseas, having probably fresh eyes when coming to Australia as to what um, could be popular that is not available um, and then turning that into an opportunity. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So yeah, okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I can definitely vouch for the low quality of ready-made meals that were in Australia up until recently. <laughs> They're so bad. So yeah, I can imagine you would see that opportunity and be like, okay, this is something we can, we can work with. So I guess there's, there's two things there that I'm really interested in. One is that is the experience of life in France and life in Australia and how that's kind of been for you, like how they have kind of compared and contrasted. Um, yeah. And I think the, so that's really interesting to me. Also the, 
the food journey. So you you went down this path at one point and went, hey, I'm going to do this business thing because it's going to get me a year visa. And at the moment, I want to explore and just grow in terms of challenges and doing new things. And you've kind of come full circle back to your to your love of food. And that's ended up being your focus right now in a business context was this beautiful kind of like journey that you've gone through. So let's come back to that second part. And let's kind of just to talk about how it's been to be uh, a French person in Australia and how, how you feel that that shaped your experience in a good way or a bad way. I think because I felt so fortunate and grateful of the opportunities I had while in London, um, it's always um, been something that um, I felt was a very big asset in my career. Um, the fact that I was a little bit different and the fact that I had something to be, um, I guess, noticed for somehow at the beginning kind of really helped. So um, I know in France, for instance, you know, getting a first job can be very, very challenging. Typically, people tend to stay in the career for the entire kind of 30 years um, of working life and it's not dynamic. So for a new graduate to actually get a first job, typically you end up doing internship after internship and you often have temporary contracts you do mat covers but it's really hard to get that first opportunity and it takes often a couple of years to get um, that first job while in London I just found straight away and the opportunities kind of kept coming and my kind of um, career growth was a lot faster than I think it would have been back in France so with that I've always been very grateful and because I met my husband quite young when I was 22 um, and his friends became, became my friend and I didn't particularly stick with French people I really much um, mixed in with um, local people as well as expats uh, from various countries. I very quickly felt closer to the English, English culture than I did to the French culture. So it was interesting because over time, year after year, I would find myself go back to France for holidays and get a bit frustrated with the French way, you know? The silly things, the fact that people just get angry quite quickly and they head queuing and they just um, don't really talk to each other in a friendly way. And, you know, there were some traits that kind of started kind of um, bugging me a bit. Um, so I think that kind of helped in some ways because it kind of made it very clear to me that I was much happier and more fulfilled and more at ease in that kind of um, English culture. Um, and then coming to Australia, it was a bit of a shift again because the culture is very different in Australia to what it is in England. It might be Commonwealth, but it's still, I think, a little bit more of a mix of America and Asia. So that was a bit of a cultural shock when I first um, arrived in Australia. Um, and it's, it's interesting because my accent, which was an asset in England, became a bit of a hurdle when I first arrived in Australia. So there was initially a year or two where I kind of felt a little bit um, challenged when people would take a few minutes to tune into my accent. So if I had, you know, a new meeting with anyone, whether it being a presentation or the likes, I would have to factor in the fact that people probably are not going to understand straight away what I say because they're just not as in tune with accents in general. Um, well, you know, in England, there's so many French people that they just, you know, hear it straight away. Um, so, yeah, did that answer your question? 
Yeah, I think that's that's really so. You kind of you would go into whatever the context was. There was kind of a moment where you kind of go, okay, I'd be, before you get into the conversation, you'd have to think, okay, so people are going to take a little bit longer to actually be able to process what I'm saying, yeah, uh, because they're not as used to uh, the the accents, basically. Yeah, and in England, I never really had that sense that people were mocking my accent you know it was just like accepted and 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 embraced and like as an example my husband he's probably in a particular situation because you know obviously he loves me but he never ever corrects what I say because I don't say it right and sometimes it's a bit of a point of friction because I wish he did because I'd rather he came from him than someone else but he refused <laughs> to because because he likes it the way I say it and he he doesn't really want to change it. And, and on the flip side, I actually have, you know, encountered in, in Australia people that continuously mock everything I say. And I know it comes from a place of banter, but actually when it's constant and when it's in front of other people, it's actually a little bit um, embarrassing. It's a bit undermining if you're trying to be credible as well in front of people you work with. Um, and I found that a little bit challenging to navigate because you laugh it off. You know, you laugh it off because you know it comes from a good place, but it's just not something that is really respectful of or considerate. And, you know, that's not something that I've actually voiced before. And I think it's an interesting thing to kind of maybe bring up now because some people might actually realize that when they're doing it, they might have to kind of dim it down a bit. You know, if you do it once, just keep it at once, like don't do it constantly. And also be mindful as to who you do it in front of, you know, so that it doesn't make people uncomfortable in the process. Yeah, that's really interesting is I, I think <clears throat> Australia, even from my my experience of being an Australian born and bred, I think we we have probably cultural insensitivity pretty, pretty uh, well wired into the, the lion's share of Australians for whatever reason. Maybe it's because there's the rest of the world and then it's us and everything kind of seems uh, so foreign to Australians because we are kind of like away from everything. But yeah, I, I, I've definitely seen, witnessed these sort of things happening. And there's almost like a little bit of a, uh, a lack of awareness as to where the line is that, that you kind of go, okay, well, this is, if it's, if it's going to be happening a lot, like it kind of, why, why is the line not there? Why, why is it not, why are people not conscious of it? I think on the, on the upside I feel like we're moving towards a place where people are becoming a little bit more sensitive to these things. But I also, I mean, from looking at this from an outsider looking in, I think, you know, business discussions are challenging enough as it is without having to think about things like that. So I can imagine that that has been a challenge for you to even have to have that gear engaged when the average Australian doesn't even have to think about that. Has that been... Of that process, I was, I guess, riffing on that still. In your decision to launch a startup from Australia, did did your French heritage or the fact that it could be a different process to launch a startup in France, did that ever weigh into your decision about moving forward with this business uh, at this time and in this place? Um, 
Well, I mean, based on the fact that the concept of what I'm launching here already exists in France. So it's only really relevant and innovative if done overseas. I haven't really launched a business in France before, so I don't really have a point of comparison. And if anything, I think there is more opportunity in Australia in general. Um, I think there is more support of small businesses um, and it's probably something that um, I think has a much greater chance of success. And I don't think I would have got to it um, if I was still in France. I think it takes leaving your dreams and going through the different stages of um, backing yourself and making brave decisions to go braver and braver. If I stuck in France, um, you know, 20 years ago and never really took those steps to kind of follow my dreams, I don't think I would have got to it um, as I am now. Uh, on the, on the, um, the kind of the whole language thing and the, and the, that aspect of, of business and life in general. I remember you telling me a while back is about uh, you had this sort of perception of yourself that you shouldn't necessarily be on podcasts because you were concerned that people might not be able to understand your accent. Yeah. And to me, I feel like at the time I, I was talking to you, I'm like, where have you got this idea from? Because you are so easy to understand uh, at that. And also, Australians love a little bit of accent by and large. Like it's like, oh, wow, this is really, you know, mysterious and interesting. So I remember you kind of having that uh, like self-imposed little bit of stigma, which I thought was really interesting. And do you feel like now that you've, I feel like you've been pumping out some podcasts, you're the voice of this company in a lot of ways. So you're uh, quite active on LinkedIn and all sorts of things. Has that changed for you now? Have you kind of challenged that own perception of yourself? Yeah, 100%. And I think sometimes if you have any form of fear, you just have to face it and then it goes away, right? I think definitely before the very first one, I had angst um, around it. And that, that was very much based on the fact that um, if you have an accent at times, having multiple communication touch points helps. So being able to see someone talk and being able to use your hands and, and all of those things can actually help engage um, the audience. Now, as a bit of um, an example, I've been doing before I did podcasts, like a few public speaking kind of events, whether being kind of big presentations or panel discussions. And I have noticed over time that the, the first people coming to me after a presentation and coming to have a chat, and I know that it comes from the best place and they actually mean it as a compliment but often the first thing they would say would be oh you know um it's so impressive that you come and do this public speaking when english is not your first language and you know oh, God. you know where, 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 where are you from you know where, where are you from like you know where's your accent from and that often is the first comment after the presentation and i know it's meant as a compliment because they're probably impressed that i can you know talk fluently and do public speaking, which takes a bit of courage. But it does make me feel like they're not paying attention to what I say, the content or the insight, but the only thing they really hear is the accent. So if the accent gets in the way, I did worry that a podcast would be the worst possible medium for it <laughs> because you, you only rely on the voice and nothing else. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. That's really interesting. So let's go back to food for a second because 
again, I love that you kind of went down this business path and then you, you and I have worked in advertising industry for quite some time. Um, that is, you know, kind of a totally different thing. And then you've come back to this, uh, this startup, which is based on, um, well, essentially, it's still based around food, but leveraging an insight that you found in the consumer market in Australia. So maybe just tell me a little bit more is about where this passion for food came from. And just maybe just give me a bit more of an overview as to how what Prep Fresh is and how it works. Um, okay, so I grew up in a family of avid cooks and food lovers. So, you know, my best childhood memories revolve around being in a kitchen and, and cooking with um, my mom and eating kind of meals as a family. Um, and that's really much kind of shaped who I am today. Um, I remember when I was, you know, 15, 16, thinking about becoming a chef because it definitely was um, a passion point of mine. But I think, you know, when it comes to making, you know, study decisions, you know, you kind of probably opt for the thing that is going to be more likely open up, opening up more opportunities. And I felt like business studies um, were a wiser choice at the time. Um, and that kind of really um, allowed a really great career. And it was actually quite easy to transfer from London to Sydney when um, I did, you know, 12 years ago. And I had a really great path in the advertising industry that elevated me to a leadership position. Um, you know, more recently, which obviously comes with lots of amazing learnings too. But I, I must say, I did kind of feel a few years ago before the whole business kind of came to me, I did feel a bit lost and a bit um, of regret in terms of whether I chose the right path, because I did feel like there was potentially that sense of um, not feeling totally fulfilled and that um, maybe I chose the wrong path. But now that I've kind of come back to it and leveraged all my learnings from my kind of previous career and all that kind of business sense to the food, the, the passion for food, it's kind of really kind of made it a bit of a match made in heaven. I don't think I could have got to where I got to without my experience um, in the leadership position and um, in marketing and advertising. So I think it's actually been a life journey. And now thinking back, it's interesting because my mum reminded me um, a few months ago that when I was five years old, my dream was to sell tomatoes at the market, which is a bit of a weird dream, I know. <laughs> um, but it's true and I remember it vividly. Um, and, and now it's funny because Prep Fresh is all about streamlining meal preps. So we basically um, sell a broad range of prepared flash frozen vegetables and herbs so that um, you can basically get it home delivered with recipes and it makes that whole cooking process a lot more streamlined. And so really it's about bringing my digital skills and my marketing skills to sell vegetables in a more kind of technology um, savvy way. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like that market, but direct to consumer, you know. <laughs> You've realized technology it. <laughs> to make it I love that. You yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So yeah, you <laughs> you managed to get your little tomato store just a much much different uh, different execution, but kind of the same thing in a way. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And and it's interesting because I think that's life. Life is a journey, and things suddenly the dots kind of start to join along the way. And now I can see clearly. And I look back. You know, I'm thirty nine, 
and I look back, you know, um, over my childhood dreams and the different stages, and it's all kind of really come together. But at every stage, you don't necessarily quite see it for what it is. You don't necessarily connect it. And it's interesting because you have to be in the right headspace and mindset to be able to see it. So, you know, when two years ago, I kind of suddenly had that kind of click that um, I wanted to just back myself and do what my dream was, which was to launch PrepFresh. Um, it took a lot of build up to it and, you know, to kind of really rewire your brain to kind of embrace that change and to fuel it. It takes a lot of um, intent and conscious effort. And I think it's something that if, um, if you have that confidence and that support around you and the right kind of environment to do it, um, you know, you're very fortunate because a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of people are stuck in the rat race and don't necessarily have the kind of support network or the headspace to feel inspired. So that's definitely something that um, I'm really, really grateful for. That moment or, or period in your life where you kind of essentially shifted from uh, employee to boss uh, outlook going, okay, I think I've worked in companies and I've done all these things, but I know for me now, I'm going to have a crack at actually being the founder or the owner of something. Can you recall what the catalyst for making that decision was? Um, I think when I had my second child and, you know, before you if if you're a woman, you know, planning to have kids, you often push back any kind of career decision until post kids. And that's a terrible thing to do, but that's something that a lot of people do. So if you have kids on your mind for the next few years, like you stick with what you're doing and you know, you're going to be on mat leave. And I was on mat leave twice, um, back to back. And so when I went back to work after my second child, and I knew that my family was complete and I knew that I was kind of going back into the workforce for good, that didn't feel comfortable to me. And that's because I knew that the career I was in, I didn't see longevity in it for me. I didn't see that I would comfortably spend another 25 years in it. And so suddenly you kind of start thinking, okay, well, if, if I don't feel I can spend 25 years in it, what is my plan B? What, what is my kind of, you know, transition opportunity? And if I'm going to do it, I may as well do it now. There is no point pushing it back because then I'm going to get over 40. It might be a bit too late. So I may as well, you know, start change now. So I think that was definitely the initial kind of catalyst. And then from there, it was really a matter of just getting started and, you know, one step at a time and starting to spend, you know, an hour there there kind of trying to do a bit of research. And I remember when I first started meeting with a couple of suppliers and, the fact that they took me seriously when I was feeling like a bit of a fraud, you know, doing like a bit of a, you know, master project, you know, and mm -hmm. they actually took me seriously and they actually, you know, put a bit of time and effort into putting together quotes. And, you know, I actually felt really quite empowered because then you kind of have things to work with, you know, you can start kind of making progress and then keeping momentum and kind of, you know, one email after the next and, you know, that kind of starts building up. So, then you kind of start looking back and after a year of doing, you know, a few hours a week, you kind of actually made quite big progress, really. So um, I think the, the initial catalyst was that 
nagging frustration that I felt I should do something about and then really just getting started but small step that um, are not necessarily a massive commitment they're just kind of small steps in the right direction and feeling so alive while doing it you know feeling so inspired and that kind of sense in your guts being so different to ever before you know and that really being the inspiration to kind of want to do more and so obviously the workload ramped up quite significantly and then I ended up doing pretty much four days a week on on the side hustle as as the same time as doing a day job for a couple of years so that became a lot more challenging in itself but it started up small and it never felt like a chore it was the thing that I really loved and enjoyed doing so in the evening as soon as the kids were in bed I couldn't care less about watching TV. I just wanted to make progress on this because it was such an exciting kind of big dream that I was trying to kind of um, bring to life. Yeah, that's a pretty good indicator really, isn't it? If you're, if you're doing something that you really, really enjoy and it's kind of giving you a bit of a thrill, that, that just creates its own momentum uh, and energy to want to do more of it. Um, when, when your energy gets low is when you're kind of going, okay, I've, I've, or you get, I think inevitably with anything, right. You, you kind of hit, you've got peaks and troughs. Sometimes things are awesome. Sometimes things start to go a bit, seem more challenging than they are. You can, this can be because you burn out a little bit or all sorts of reasons. How do you kind of bring that momentum, get that momentum happening again? What, what, what works for is, how do you get that energy back when it starts to dip? Um, Exercise. So I tend to do exercise every morning in some way, shape or form, like, you know, half an hour kind of um, jogging on the, you know, by the beach or going for a, a longer walk or doing a bit of Pilates, like whenever I exercise, movement makes my um, brain get into a space that really makes me feel inspired and that's something that I've noticed a few years ago so I kind of really stick with that routine. Sometimes I don't feel like it, but you know what? I'd still do it because I know <laughs> that if I don't do it, then it's easy the next day to talk yourself out of it again. And I just know that it's very important to kind of stick with it. Um, and I just anticipate and expect times when I feel a bit deflated too. So then you kind of just end up riding the waves and not really let that affect you too much. You kind of, you know, let it happen. You feel those, you know, down negative feelings at times, but then you kind of expect it, it's normal. And then you kind of let the morning kind of exercise and that kind of golden hour in the morning when you easily kind of feel inspired, or at least when I do, really kind of perk you back up. So that's really um, that kind of flow that gets me going. If I have a big decision to make, I go for a three or four hour walk, like a very long walk and the the sight of the sea and the movement just gets me thinking into a really kind of deep and meaningful space. So I like doing long walks with my husband because every single time it makes me feel so grateful for living in Sydney and having such a good life and 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 loving you know everything which you know tends to kind of really get your mindset your mind your mindset in the right space. But then equally, if I have a big decision to make, like for instance, before resigning for my day job back in October, for so many months, I was tossing with the idea and I kind of wanted to, but I was a bit scared too. And I felt it was maybe a bit too early and I just wasn't quite ready. 
one day I went for that walk and I literally visualized what my life would be like in three months time if I hadn't resigned and what my life would be like in three months time if I had resigned and trying to anticipate the kind of worst case scenario in in both situations and that really kind of made me decide and I've never looked back it's really been like a really good way to kind of just confidently make that decision that was nagging for a while yeah so you sort of forced yourself to to uh, experience what the different paths would would take you down how that would actually feel like you took the time to go okay I'm going to be that person and see what it feels like that's a similar a similar mindset you kind of took with the deciding you know whether to start a startup and, and that sort of thing is yeah I guess pulling back and going okay I'm going to spend the time whether it's going walking or whether it's something I do at home to really try and pressure test this and look what the outcome would look like and how that would feel to me and work through that the other two things I, I took out of that was, you know, expecting that there's going to be a dip with anything like things always dip, even when you've got the best thing happening, there's going to be a bit of a low point. So if you get in that mentality, you were like, I'm ready for something shitty to happen. It's inevitable. That's fine. I expect it. I think that's really powerful. Um, and the other one, like making plans or deciding on your schedule the day before you actually, the schedule actually happens. So I think that one's really good because I was uh, reading, I think I was reading a blog. No, I was watching a, a YouTube clip from um, Sylvie Van Douglas Itu, who's this Muay Thai legend, a fighter legend. She's basically saying she was able to train seven years continuously because with one little system that she employed, which was to never make a decision on training on the day of training. So always decide the day before. She's like, am I gonna am I gonna get up tomorrow and do the run? I decide it on the day, but ne- the day before, but never in the morning. Because in the morning, my body will say, I feel like crap, I'm tired and I don't want this. So I think like taking the emotion out of decisions is really, can be really challenging to do, but one of the easy ways to do it is to do it the day before the emotion hits you and kind of just lock yourself into the system. So I thought that's really interesting that you've kind of employed a similar thing. There is something fascinating about understanding the science of the brain and how the brain works and how to trick your own brain. (laughs) Mm. Um, I kind of read a book by Joe Dispenza, uh, Becoming Supernatural, a couple of years ago now. And it's really, really helped me understand the power of your thoughts and, and how to use them and leverage them to your, to your benefit, you know, and, and how to, rewire your brain is kind of I think the term used um, and anticipate the fact that your brain is always going to navigate towards comfortable and the safe it's normal that's what the brain does (laughs) and Mm -hmm. you have to consciously try and push in the other direction to kind of actually achieve big things and and that is something that if you force yourself for a little bit then it becomes second nature it becomes normal and really understanding some of that and practicing it has really helped kind of change the way I think. And, and that's been quite a big um, game changer. You know, when I was um, a teenager, I went through a period of anxiety, like most teenagers do, probably didn't help that I was um, <laughs> trying to achieve so much <laughs> at such a young age. Big pressure on yourself. <laughs> Um, but I did go through a period of um, 
a bit of an eating disorder. And then that kind of came back when I was in Sydney in a form of panic attacks. And in both situations, what really helped was um, hypnotherapy and, oh. and visualization. And, and so for other reasons, it kind of um, somehow introduced me to the notion of hypnotherapy and visualizing events and trying to kind of recreate your own memory of the event by relieving it in a different way. And, and that has been probably one of the best um, way to start being in tune with those things from quite a young age. So, you know, it's one of the things in life that I think any, any challenge is always really an opportunity. And when I was very young, when I was two, my parents divorced and my dad remarried for um, a number of times. I'm not going to say how many times. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and that meant that I had to adapt to new families and, you know, his new wives um, over a short period of time that required quite a bit of empathy to try and understand how they feel and trying to adapt to a new environment and also, you know, quite significant kind of resilience. And obviously there is worse things for kids to go through and I'm not kind of complaining or, you know, making it like a big deal, but it was probably one of the best possible experience really, because that helped really ingrain in me some of the key um, important traits of entrepreneurs. Like I'm sure my resilience comes from that. So I actually would like to thank my dad <laughs> for, you know, his French ways of, you know, courting far too many women. And um, <laughs> really, it's actually been like um, one of the best possible um, life event that has um, stepped the ways to who I am today. Also kind of going across the visualize, visualization thing, which you used to kind of combat mental things. You've also then in your later life continued to use it to assist with decision-making and all sorts of different stuff. So that's great. You kind of learn this, this life skill, having to hack your brain, as you say, because you do, right? It's like your best asset and your worst enemy. It's always against you. It's always with you. So you got to work out these little shortcuts. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So is I feel like you're also in kind of involved in, uh, always involved in sort of women in business groups or tribes or promoting that um, empowering women uh, who should go out and seek business success or put their hand up and start a business and this sort of thing. What, what kind of got you into these tribes? And I guess, yeah, what, what have you learned from being involved with them? Where, where's this kind of going for you? Um, so it's something that is relatively new. Um, I, I did an accelerator with SBE back in July last year. And that is very much um, something that is managed by, um, you know, very well-respected female entrepreneurs and investors and connectors. And the sole purpose is about giving, you know, startup founders, female founders, a leg up. And they know how hard it can be to um, get a business off the ground. And especially for women, for two reasons. One, because they don't tend to um, feel as confident 
And if that can be a bit of an endurance to a normal corporate career, it's even worse when it comes to actually starting a business because that takes immense confidence and courage to kind of commit so much time and, and money to, to get a business off the ground. But then also on the flip side, it's also because women are less likely to get funding from investors. So investors tend to more naturally back men. And that's kind of slowly changing, but the rationale being that if we can actually help um, female founders, um, I guess, get introduced to more opportunities when it comes to funding, that's actually balancing things out. And for me, especially because of being in the food industry, like it's much easier to get funding at the early stage that I'm at if you're in a tech business, you know, that... Mm without a physical product, you kind of tend to, there's a bit less risk um, involved. So you tend to get um, more investors um, putting money into it. Um, so for me, it was really probably the main way to possibly get the funding I needed, but it's also been a bit of a, an eye-opener because realizing the generosity and um, that spirit of um, tribe that comes from women kind of helping each other um, is actually very powerful. And so, yeah, that's definitely been something that I've been myself um, wanting to kind of spend more time in. And if in the past I've been avoiding a little bit the kind of French tribe because I didn't feel it was going to be that beneficial, um, I did fall deeply into the media tribe, which to be honest, was actually quite hard to get out of because it's such a, it's such a fun kind of um, young social kind of industry that it's very easy to surround yourself with people that are all from your same industry. And so for me to really get into a different headspace, I kind of consciously tried to open up my um, social network to more entrepreneurs. You know, if people say that you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with, well, actually, no, it's interesting because the five people I spend the most time with are actually female entrepreneurs. <laughs> so mm. it's naturally kind of um, evolved that way. Is we're going to jump into the, the final section, which is my post-fight interview questions. Uh, we've, we've covered off a few of them in our, in our chat already. So I'm just going to jump into kind of the last couple. So what, if anything, are you trying to get better at? Okay, the one thing that has been a challenge for the past couple of years because of juggling so much with the, the day job and the, the side hustle and now obviously getting the business off the ground has been quite um, all-consuming. I just want to be able to take a break and embrace it and enjoy it. Like right now, I love working on my business so much that I do it nonstop seven days a week into the evening. <laughs> this is exactly what I was talking about. You lean into things. Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> but I don't necessarily think that's the healthiest for my family life and my um, sanity either. So as much as it's easy to do that, I think I need to force myself to take a break at the weekend and genuinely not take the laptop out and that's been on my mind for the past um three months really since the christmas break and i haven't managed to do it yet so that's definitely <laughs> something that i need to work on <laughs> that's a work in progress yes <laughs> <laughs> uh 
what sort of advice do you have for someone who wants to follow in your footsteps and and begin their own company or their own business? Just get started. You know, whether it's an hour a week, just start putting a little bit of time and thought into it to see how it makes you feel and to see how much progress you can make on it and treat it as a hobby, you know, do it as um, put a bit of time aside. doesn't have to be much, but just an hour or two a week. And um, that's really the best way to get the ball rolling and to start gaining a bit of momentum. And um, you're not committing too much initially for the first couple of months, you know, a lot of the scoping and, um, trying to assess the opportunity, all of that really is more like brand power as opposed to investment um, that you need to make. So it's um, an easy thing to do just to kind of see whether it's got legs or not. Yeah, I think your point on making the time for it, I feel that if you can't make the time for it, regardless of your life situation, if you're working full time or whatever you're doing, if you don't make that change in your lifestyle to make the time for this new thing. If you can't make that commitment, it's going to be very difficult to move on with the rest of the commitments. So I I think that's a really good place to start, like make it routine. And if you can, even if it's 30 minutes a day, if you can stick to that routine, you've kind of made that commitment to yourself to show yourself that you're ready to make it to the next commitment, right? So it's kind of, it's not all in overnight, but you've, you've taken that first step and you've built confidence in yourself in doing that. So I think there's a there's power in that. A book that really helped me initially feel inspired was a book by Christina Carlson. She's um, the founder of Kiki K, the stationary brand. Oh, and, yeah. and she's um, written a book called My Dream Life Starts Here. And it's basically practical exercises that helps you dream big without any limitation. So, you know, if you had all the money in the world and all the time in the world and, you know, if you have no fear, like what would your dreams be? And and so she's got like um, a practical kind of guide as to how to list and take action on some of your dreams to really live your best life. And that's something that I did that initiated that process. And when you start looking at the bigger picture and what your life could actually be, if you start trying to put thought into it and putting a bit of an action plan to kind of try and, um, you know, get to that dream life, that can be um, a really good way to get started. And it's actually quite fun to do with, you know, a cup of coffee on the Sunday morning and just kind of allocate a couple of hours to just let your brain go into places that it's never been before, you know, and really try to kind of see what your best possible life could be. And I think doing that possibly with your partner and aligning your kind of short, medium, long-term dreams, big and small, is something that is probably a very good way to both get in the same headspace and and start kind of trying to have a bit of a path to that life. That sounds like good advice uh, to do in a partnership, whether it's in a relationship or even in a business concept uh, context is just that uh, feeling like you're both sharing a vision before you go too far down uh, whatever the, the actual execution is. I really like that one. Is uh, any, anything else you'd like to uh, mention or speak about on the podcast? Um, so obviously we are still early stage with PrepFresh and we are about to launch on Kickstarter to get pre-orders, um, which is going to be 
very exciting. We need all the support that we can get. So if you can um, find on our website the link to sign up to our newsletter and maybe keep across what, um, what we do and our timings for the launch, um, that would be super appreciated. And um, if you can um, become a preppers and you know um, come on a journey with us, that would be um, absolutely awesome. So our website is um, prepfresh.com.au and we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook. Thank you. Awesome. And at launch is, will you be servicing all of Australia or is it certain cities? How does that work? Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane to start with, and then the five gap cities um, in the later stage. Very exciting. It's an excellent product. I love the look of it. I love the thought that's gone into it. And I like that it's really easy to understand what it is and does and what the benefit is. So I think you've got a, you've got a winner is, and if you give it half the love I've seen, you give anything professional, I'm sure it's going to just kick goals. Just make sure you get plenty of walks in and don't burn out. <laughs> okay. Very good. Thank you is I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. For the latest Doing Epic Stuff happenings, you can join our newsletter on mailchimp.doingepicstuff.com forward slash subscribe. And for direct inquiries, catch me on mike at doingepicstuff.com. We out.